you know, any money I pay you as a dividend, Nick, is money I'm not reinvesting into my business to, to drill baby drill, if you will. So it's a prime setup for, I think, a, uh, a multi-year energy boom. I'm Chris Hill, and that was Jim Gillies, Senior Analyst at Motley Fool Canada. Jim and Nick Seipel are taking another dive into energy investing. It's a cyclical industry, but one that they believe is facing relentless demand with a less certain supply. Today, they're digging into the wide-ranging effects of an energy crunch, how a shale boom incinerated $700 billion, and the ways that individual investors could actually benefit from fewer institutional funds investing in the space. So off the bat, Jim, there's an energy crunch, there's an energy supply crunch in the market today. Why are we seeing that? What the heck is going on? The world needs a lot of energy. As we come out of the pandemic, as we keep adding people to our global population, uh, as we keep having people wanting, you know, understandably, uh, lifestyles uh, more like what we enjoy in the West, which of course are inherently higher energy consumptive, we have found ourselves uh, with record worldwide demand. So uh, I, I always try to kind of set the set, set the parameters. You know, the, the world demand for energy. This is not where it's coming from at all. Like we, we're not talking commodities yet. But the the worldwide demand is about 175,000 terawatt hours per year. Uh, to put that into perspective, the average American household, single family dwelling, uses between generally about 10 and and 11,000 kilowatt hours a year. Uh, and a terawatt hour is a billion kilowatt hours. So what this means is worldwide energy demand would be like powering 16 and a half billion average North American sized homes. So, I mean, it is a massive, massive sink. And so that, that's point number one. Point number two is that uh, worldwide energy use is continually growing. Demand is growing at just under uh, a 2% annual rate for the past three decades. So. Uh, we now have, you know, we have this massive demand. We have uh, a rising demand, and the question becomes, where do we get it? How do we fill? How do we fill that bucket? Is what I like to call it. And uh, you know, right now, uh, the big three fossil fuels, so oil, gas, and because again, we don't care how we fill it, but but we know we need to fill it. Um, the big three fossil fuels are running at just about just shy of 80% of, of the share. So oil, gas, and coal are the big three. And it was about 79% in 2019. The problem is it was about that same percentage 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago as well. And so uh, now there has been a, a shift more from coal to gas within that, the fossil fuel share. But the sh overall share of fossil fuels has remained the same. And what this suggests to me is that for all of the talk of the move to renewables, to the expansion of wind and solar and geothermal, all of which I think are important and vital to our energy future, they've not yet made a dent really in filling that bucket. And so unless we're going to argue about you know reducing how big the bucket is, which I don't think we're going to, we now have a very interesting problem to solve. Yeah, so, so you talked about this relentless growth in, in energy demand. You talk about countries around the world, developing countries, continuing to develop, continuing to mm -hmm. uh, increase uh, standards of living around the world. And of course, that comes with increasing energy demand on a global basis. But if you look back the past 
five years or so, uh, we, we've really seen a, a contraction in in capital expenditures going towards new uh, oil and gas exploration. And there's reasons behind that. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, investments in the in the 2010s, particularly in, in the shale industry, weren't. Um, didn't provide economic returns to shareholders, and one of the the you know uh, facts you can cite to that is 2020. There was a record year in the history of the oil and gas industry for bankruptcies, as a lot of those investments and debts came home to roost. And uh, as a result, when you see a poor performance of your investments, doesn't encourage investors to put a lot more money into the space. And so you saw, you've seen uh, since the, the last peak in 2016, a, a slowdown in capital expenditure. And obviously, if a slowdown in capital expenditure, you have a slowdown um, in growth in support. Supply while while demand has continued to grow, and then we have this this big ramp up in in demand coming out of the pandemic in March. Global oil demand was 101 percent of 2019 levels, so we fully recovered uh, um, to pre-pandemic demand, and so we're already expecting a little bit of a of a supply crunch as that that underinvestment in oil and gas over the past several years uh, came home to roost. And then you throw on top of that the war between uh, Russia and Ukraine and the impact that that's had on on Russia's exports of of oil and gas and you know production. Of, of global commodities in general. If you look at, look at food in Ukraine, um, fertilizers exported from Russia, there's, there's really wide-ranging impacts of this shortage beyond just those, those headline three commodities, Jim. So, for investors who are trying to think about, okay, gosh, we have this energy shortage, what does this really mean in the real world? Um, thoughts on that? Boy, we're, we're really painting a a happy, uh, happy circumstance here. Let's see if we can get to more of a happy circumstance. But yeah, no, this is this is a real problem. And and just to kind of go back a little bit, I used to be a real, um, real negative on the oil and gas space uh, through much of the 2010s. Uh, and and my my logic was uh, was simply this: most of these companies were spending like a buck twenty for every buck they pulled out of the ground. They were in constant reserves. Um, growth, uh, go out, buy more oil, do more. They were spending, 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 and and they also so so basically, you know, when you're spending a buck twenty to to raise a dollar, um, you know, obviously you're you're burning more money than you're making in, and you know, and, but you know, in in when times are good, because you had hundred dollar plus barrel oil, you know, circa 2014. Um, you know the, the the these companies. They, they were, look how well we're doing. They also paid a dividend, but of course they're already in many cases cash flow negative. So you know the dividend act as a further drain on cash flow, and they would they would kind of make it up through continuous equity and continuous uh, debt issues, uh, because you know we assumed that uh, high high commodity prices would be here forever. The milk and honey would never run out. Uh, and then you know, but you kind of point out that well, this is inherently a bet on reserve prices or or resource prices remaining high, uh, which you can't control as an E and P company exploration and production. You, you know, you just don't control them. Um, you know, and so when you have, it's inherently unknowable and uncontrollable the price future commodity prices. And so when when you do start to get a slowdown, when you do have um, when you aren't able to make money, uh, a bunch of these players you know kind of went boom. Uh, down 70, 80 plus percent. Uh, their stock prices laid waste. Uh, you know, their dividends slashed, if not eliminated. Financing dried up, and the estimates uh, from the the U.S. shale boom from the middle part of last decade, early middle part of last decade, the estimates are somewhere between 700 billion to a trillion dollars in capital raised for the industry to to make kind of uh, 
well, to make your fine country, you know, supposedly energy independent. I mean, it's more complicated than that. But, you know, uh, you know, somewhere between 700 billion and a trillion dollars was incinerated, did not earn back its, you know, didn't earn close to its cost of capital. Uh, and so that has made the industry as a whole and the financing side of things as well as a whole somewhat reticent to dig in precisely at a time when we arguably need more energy. So there is no, um, there, the, it's almost like these companies have got religion and, and we, we're, we're going to see if they're going to backslide a little bit, but that, you know, the, you know, the, uh, the financiers have said, Hey, the last time we raised money for you, we lost our shirts. The investors have said we lost our shirts. We want to see free cash flow generation. We want to see you generating money and we want you sustainably generating money. And we want to see some of that coming back to us, the investors in the form of dividends, share buybacks, maybe deleveraging of a company. And so we've really got ourselves in, I can't believe I'm going to say this, we've got ourselves in a bit of a pickle. I, I will argue this is probably the most important industry, uh, you know, it, it is where we get our energy because everything else stops without it. And so we have an energy industry that is coming out of the pandemic, as you said, as, as every industry is, uh, that has this unrelenting demand that has historically underinvested itself since 2014, 2015. So you're earning about seven years of, of just, you know, because you need continuous capital investment within the industry. Uh, we've not done that, uh, the collective we. Um, and now we've got uh, oil prices running. And oh, by the way, there's that uh, present unpleasantness happening uh, in Russia and Ukraine, which again, only exacerbates the problem. And, and, and throughout all of this, as uh, some of these energy commodity companies are now being beaten up for having record profits, which again, uh, you know, go back to 2014, 2015, 2016, very different story. Um, their investors are demanding real returns, which is also serving to, you know, any money I pay you as a dividend, Nick, is money I'm not reinvesting into my business to, to drill baby drill, if you will. So um, it's... It's it's a it's a prime setup for I think a uh, a multi-year energy boom. And since we are an investing company, an investing show, that's kind of where I'm I'm now going to look at this. Some of those investments that you know um, investors were not realizing return that were uneconomic relative to the business. If you think about that, that that production to a certain extent was subsidizing the market, was keeping energy prices lower than they would have mm -hmm. been alternatively. And now when you have underinvestment in the market, it's arguably putting prices higher than they would have been otherwise. And so to maybe to go to that that line that I like to use, energy is the is the prime commodity. And energy mm -hmm. is the is the thing that underlies all Basically, other products. It takes energy to produce products. It takes energy to bring products to market. It, the, fo the, the the consumer's ability to afford energy impacts their ability, you know, to demand goods in the market. So as we've seen, uh, you know, previously when we had some of that economic production essentially subsidizing the market with uh, with arguably oil and gas that shouldn't have come out of the ground. That was a boon uh, to economic activity. And as those prices increased, it will, it will be a headwind um, to economic activity. And you see that uh, across the board. So diesel prices at record highs certainly impacting uh, company margins. Gasoline prices, you hear these, these uh, the, the phrase you hear thrown around is, is demand destruction. So, so as prices get higher, uh, individuals are less likely to go drive around and take vacations. The, the fact that I, I, I think is a fun fact to cite is, is Cracker Barrel in there 
their earnings <laughs> this week cited a slowdown from their over 65 consumers. If you think about the folks who are going to be first hit by these increases in, in commodity prices, it's the marginal consumer. So, in a place like North America, it would be folks on, on fixed income. On a global basis, it would be some of these developing countries that are now bidding for short supplies up against you know countries like Europe and, and North America um, and that sort of thing. And then even outside of these 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 core commodities, so we, we talked about um, you know shortage in products like diesel and, and shortage in, in gasoline. There's other commodities where there is there is effects as well. So you look at plastics and building materials, uh, certainly an impact there. But the, the big impact that I don't think a lot of people realize is in, is in food production. So one of the key inputs to global food production is natural gas, which is used to make ammonia, which is used to make nitrogenous fertilizers. And the, uh, Vaclav Smil, who's a well-regarded uh, scientist, has, uh, has cited, based on some of his research, that uh, without uh, the nitrogen-based fertilizers produced uh, largely from natural gas it would be impossible to feed at current levels nearly half of the world's eight billion people. So when you look at shortages in things like you know uh, oil and gas, it's not just okay you can't drive, you can't go on, on vacation. At least for for folks on the margin, um, it, it can impact food demand. So. Um, Again, the prime commodity it touches all parts um, all parts of the economy. When you see prices increasing all across the economy, certainly something consumers are concerned about. And when consumers are concerned about something, you see governments concerned about that as well. We've seen some actions from a number of governments trying to stoke demand, trying to solve this problem. Jim, can you tell us about that and uh, you know what prospects they have uh, for solving the problem in the near term? I, I think. Uh Near term, it's going to be a problem. You know, I know that uh, uh, your president, I believe, has tapped the strategic petroleum reserve. Uh, with all due respect, that is not going to, um, that, that's the proverbial drop in the bucket uh, at, at our current demand. I know that uh, people said, well, why can't OPEC just pump more? We have seen that OPEC largely is, uh, I believe, an article you shared with me. Yeah, the Secretary General of OPEC has, has said this week, said, quote, OPEC is running out of capacity with the exception of two or three members. We are all maxed out. The world needs to come to exactly. terms with this brutal fact. It is a global challenge. Those are That's a series of quotes from the Secretary yeah. General of OPEC. And, and you've seen similar comments from, from Saudi Arabian leaders as well. There's just not a lot of spare capacity out there. There's not another you know, shale-type boom waiting in the wings. Uh, and, and it takes time to produce these other types of resources. A subject near and dear to both our hearts, I think probably nearer and dearer to yours, is uh, you know the substitutive effect of, of nuclear, of bringing on uh, kind of modern day nuclear uh, power generation to kind of offset like uh, offset from offset baseload power from you know primarily gas and coal burning, but um, you know and but you know it's not like we can go throw a, it's not like throwing up a Chipotle where we can probably have one built in a couple of months, uh, you know. Uh, a new nuclear power. If we do all uh, get religion on bringing nuclear uh, uh, to scale, it's going to take a decade or more, and and, and with with permitting and, and building. And I mean, I grew up in the I grew up in the shadow of a nuclear power plant in Pickering, Ontario. So uh, <laughs> that might explain a bit. Uh, but you know, like we were never terribly worried about it. But I, but I understand with nuclear comes a whole host of other concerns. And so with oil and gas, of course, you have uh, oil and gas and, and coal uh, combustion. You have uh, global climate change, uh, CO2 emissions, and what have you. Uh, with nuclear, there is the, the spent fuel that has uh, some environmental implications. Uh, I am in the camp that says uh, you deal with the most pressing problem first. I, 
I feel the most pressing problem is the climate change aspect of things. So that's why I'm a fan of nuclear. But, uh, you know, I think I think you are more versed on nuclear than I am. I'm just more of a conceptual thing. So what do, what do you think in terms of how we can kind of speed track or speed walk the nuclear option forward? Sure. So, so I think in the near term, if you look at uh, the, the primary drivers of, of, of electricity demand or primary producers of electricity, natural gas, coal, th- those types of, uh, of, of facilities. Now, um, there's been a, lots of drive to replace those facilities or introduce more renewable wind and solar facilities into the market to try to you know, reduce dependence on fossil fuels. The issue with, with wind and solar uh, is that they're intermittent. They only produce when the wind is blowing and the sun is out. And also, there's, there's issues with, with you know, overall efficiency on, on, on some of those um, those projects, and so if you want to transition the grid long term away from fossil fuels, you need something that is that can provide baseload power to truly replace one for one uh, some of this this coal and natural gas production. And one of the ways you can do that is with nuclear power. There's been significant nuclear buildouts. I mean, going back to the the 60s and 70s, there's certainly technology available, but it's been a, a politically um, charged topic for some of the reasons the Jim laid out. But you have seen as prices have become higher, uh, attitudes change. Uh, the EU in their uh, in their clean energy, fra- I think European Commission, excuse me, in their clean energy framework earlier this year included uh, uh, nuclear energy as quote unquote green energy. You've seen Japan reduce its uh, pledge to to back off on nuclear power. South Korea's new uh, political leadership has has advocated um, nuclear power a- as well. So you're seeing increasing political uh, support for some of these these types of projects as well. Not to say, uh, but but I don't think it's a it's a one size fits all. Uh, um, problem, right? I think we'll see. We'll need to see significant increases in solar, uh, solar and wind uh, investment. We'll, we'll need to see in the near term to solve our our uh, our, our problems. Uh, we'll need more natural gas um, and, and oil investment. Even if we transition away from from natural gas um, and oil for transportation and for energy use, we'll still need some of those products like plastics and, and fertilizer mm-hmm. that I mentioned earlier. So I think there's going to be sustainable demand of these commodities um, across the board. Um, but regardless. Regardless, off the top, we let off saying there's an energy crunch, and to solve an energy crunch, you need to invest in new supply. We said there's lots of different ways we can go about doing that, whether it's nuclear or oil and gas or, or, or wind and solar. So the question to you, Jim, we said we're an investing show. Where are you most excited uh, to to invest or look for opportunities to invest to solve this current energy problem? Sure. Uh, well, I mean, I, I, what you've just said about about the nuclear, Nick, just if I may. It, it, it goes back to my bucket analogy. We we have a bucket that consumes 175,000 terawatt hours a year. We we have a bucket that needs a lot. And again, it does not matter how we fill that bucket. We just know we have to. And so that's why we've been, you know, proponents of of you know fast tracking nuclear. And I I, I am I am hopeful that uh, I'm hopeful that that is on the table. But again, it, 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 you know there. There, there is some time issues, and the time issues feed directly into until we have, say, nuclear spooling up to to aid in filling that bucket and remove some of the fossil fuels. Fossil fuels being still almost 80% share and having been for decades, uh, where I am most excited, sounds bad to say the word excited, uh, where I'm most interested in, 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 in being in this space as an investor is in a bunch of, you know, what we're going to call the, uh, I'm going to say two groups. Um, first, the plain vanilla kind of uh, oil and gas EMPs, 
which again are I uh, I used to loathe with a passion, but you know, as Charlie Munger has been wont to say, if uh, you know, try to try to destroy a cherished belief at least once a year, and, and it'll, it'll help improve your thinking. Uh, I have come full 180 on the EMPs for now. Not all of them. Uh, but we do have a few that we've recommended in Hidden Gems Canada. I'll give you one. Uh, it's probably my favorite in the space. Bear in mind, it's a small one because, uh, you know, Hidden Gems is a small cap service. Um, it is a company called International Petroleum. Uh, it is uh, jointly listed in Canada uh, on the Toronto Stock Exchange, IPCO, IPCO is its ticker, as well as uh, listed over in uh, Stockholm. Um, and it is uh, – it's – Pretty standard E&P company. Um, the the London family has uh, about a 27% stake. They're long-term players in the space, like multi-decades, both in in uh, oil and gas and and, and mining. Um, they they have uh, I've already used the term "got religion," so we'll do it again. They got religion, I think, faster than some of their compatriots, and are very free cash flow focused, very low leverage, and at present oil prices, the operating leverage of the company is stunning. Uh, so they are in the midst right now of buying back probably about 9% of the stock. They're doing a, uh, a special or substantial issuer bid, which is basically a tender offer um, to, to buy a large chunk of their stock. And I suspect they probably have, uh, uh, it might be funded by all the cash they're going to generate in this quarter. We said at the top of the show, we've seen this big uh, decline over the past several years in CapEx on energy exploration and production. If you think about how oilfield servicers get paid, they get paid out of that CapEx budget. So if you expect that CapEx budget needs to increase and increase meaningfully over the next several years to get supply and demand in line, that means there's more and more cash flowing to those um, those oilfield service businesses. And then lastly, the royalty business, you think about these, com- these businesses as like silent partners. If more oil and gas comes out of the ground, that they own, they make more money. And so, of course, if oil and gas companies are spending more money to pour more oil and, ga- more oil and gas out of the ground, which helps the servicers, guess what? The royalty companies are going to make more money, too. So, the underlying thesis is here is we think that oil prices are constructive such that it makes economic sense for oil exploration and companies to exploration and production companies to continue investing and that they will continue producing cash in the near in the near term in the near term. That's why it's an interesting place to invest in today and why it's not uh, why it wasn't an interesting place to invest in, say, three years ago. These companies are producing producing meaningful cash and at least in the near term, as long as this cycle uh, continues to uh, to move up, and I think it will be extended for a while because the marginal barrel is um the type of barrel that will take a number of years to, to bring online, then there, there will be cash for shareholders. Um, to the extent any of that's wrong and there's not cash for shareholders, then maybe we see a repeat of, of prior cycles. But that's the investment thesis if you're investing in uh, you know the quote-unquote energy boom today, if you're investing in correcting the quote-unquote energy crunch that's going on today. Jim, final thoughts? Yeah, it's just that uh, you know we we've talked about the capital cycle, obviously. And, and I am of the opinion that the capital cycle this time around is probably going to be, and I, we've talked before about the dangers of saying this time is different. Uh, but truthfully, every time is different, maybe good or bad. The other wild card we really haven't hit yet, but I want to mention is, uh, you know, the companies themselves are somewhat reticent to be investing in in the present capital cycle because, you know, their investors in the prior cycle, you know, got their heads handed to them and like, you know, so. They're reticent about giving money without being sure they're going to get something back. But there's also parts of governments and organizations responding to ESG concerns, pressures, what have you. Uh, I'm not here to say positive or negative things about ESG. I'm just saying what what I think you know is 
is I think reasonably uh, self-evident to say is that you know when when there are forces pushing against owning a certain sector and and there's certainly uh, a great number of institutions pension funds that will not own energy stocks right now because of their uh, their anti-ESG uh, stance yeah, environmental social governance um, that is yet another factor in favor and it's somewhat counterintuitive but I think it's another factor in favor of going here because you know I, I like to liken it so it's an imperfect analogy but I like to liken it to you know uh, tobacco stocks tobacco no there's no one who's unaware that tobacco is awful for you uh, but yet tobacco stocks have been some of the best performers uh, multi-decade performers in part because they you know you know, people didn't want to own them, and so the people who did own them, you know, they always kept the valuation low because people didn't want to own them, and they produced a lot of cash flow, and they used their cash flow to pay dividends and buy back stock, and the returns for, you know, shareholders were excellent. And, you know, while I do not think that uh, uh, oil and gas uh, is is completely free of uh, their cyclicality, unlike tobacco, um, I don't believe that they're free of it. I think it's going to draw out this particular capital cycle more than we think it's going to, uh, which is why I am still interested in these spaces. But I, I am I am watching uh, four signs of, of, of uh, you know, where, when, when do we think we are going to be topped out? And that's a whole different conversation. But Yeah, it's, it's like tobacco if uh, half the world population couldn't survive if it, uh, if it didn't exist. Um, to go back to what we said earlier about uh, <laughs> like about I said, fertilizer, an imperfect analogy. Yeah, well, and which 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 makes this far more important, uh, you know. But again, I, I I I'm not making a positive or negative statement about tobacco. I personally find tobacco use disgusting, but I'm saying the returns from those companies are been pretty good, uh, and there are reasons for that, and some of those reasons tie back to general uh, loathing and reticence on the part of investors, governments, and what have you to invest in that spot. And that, to me, there are some similarities. It rhymes with a little bit what's going on with uh, oil and gas and energy right now. And and that, as an investor, uh, as something of a contrarian investor, that interests me. Yeah, it's, it's like the old Peter Lynch thing, look for companies with low institutional ownership. There's, uh, for many of these companies, institutional ownership, at least compared to historical norms, uh, is below average. But Jim, that's all the time we have today. Thanks so much for joining me to chat about oil, gas, and global commodity markets. Until next time, I'm Nick Seipel. We'll see you later. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.